0: Open up your Bibles. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and last week I got to talk to the wives about submitting to your husbands. Wasn't that fun? Yeah? Yeah, good. Awesome. This week, here's the verse that we're going to try to tackle, and it goes like this. Husbands, love your wives as who? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So I'd like to tell you a joke. I am not confident it is appropriate. Um, First service was a little wishy-washy, so we'll see. Um, The the pun of the joke comes back to the term hillbilly, and I just don't know if hillbilly is a derogatory term or not, so we're going to go with no. Um, And uh, so, true story, not really. There's this hillbilly and his family, and they grew up in Kentucky. Oh, sorry. I got, a, I got a Kentuckian right here. So they grew up in Kentucky in the hills and uh, never been in civilization. All they've ever known is Kentucky. And um, so, so they, they, they come to the big city and they are blown away by the technology. And uh, so then they're, they're in a mall and there's this, there's this box and people keep going into the box and then disappearing. And uh, the box is called an elevator. So the dad is with his kids and he looks in and ugly lady goes into the box, and 30 seconds goes by, and out comes this beautiful woman, and he says, kids, go get your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Is that appropriate? I don't know. (laughs) Some of you, you're like, that wasn't appropriate, but it was funny. (laughs) There is a point to the joke. Okay, Uh, many of you, um, you're married, and your marriages stink, right? And you know it, your kids know it, and your friends know it, and that's just obvious, but In your brain, you're like, if only I had a different wife. If only I had a different husband. Everything could be better. And there's just one huge problem with that thought. You know what the problem is? Everywhere you go, there you are. (laughs) And and there's a principle here that if we're going to talk about headship and leadership and submission and all that kind of stuff, you got to believe it because if you don't believe it, you'll never be able to apply anything that we're talking about. And here's the principle. You are the greatest problem in your marriage. You are the greatest problem in your marriage. Who is the greatest problem in your marriage? You're gonna say, she is. (laughs) That is not the right answer. So um, Paul Tripp has this uh, teaching on marriage and he basically says that before any functional counseling, before any functional therapy, before anybody can actually come together and have a good marriage, both parties need to believe that they are the greatest problem in their marriage. Otherwise, if one person believes it's the other person's fault, what are they going to do? They're going to wag their finger at them, they're going to point to them, they're going to blame them, and last time I checked, wagging your finger, pointing and blaming does not bring about reconciliation. Can I get an amen? Amen? All right, good. All right. So last service, the ladies refuse to say amen. We're not a culottes and doily kind of church, okay? So you can say amen. So ladies, can I get an amen? It'll be fine, okay? That's, that's fine. But here's the principle. You have to believe that you are the greatest problem in your marriage. And if two people in a marriage come together and they are both firmly convinced that they are the biggest problem, will there be blame? The answer is no. Will there be faster repentance? The answer is yes. Can you control what they do? The answer is no, but you can control what you do. And so when two parties come to counseling in a marriage, And one party is blame, 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 blame. Barely will there be reconciliation. But as both parties come in and say, I want to own every single part of this marriage. I want to own my fault. I want to own the ways I haven't loved you well. I want to own the ways that I've pushed you to do things or neglected you in ways that left you vulnerable. I want to own every single thing I can. When both parties do that, finally, real long-term reconciliation can actually happen. No pressure, but that's where I want to try to get you to today. And uh, I want to talk about five questions that this text demands of us, and then we're going to get into this. Number one, is my bride happy? I don't mean, is she happy with the kids? I don't mean, is she happy with her job? I mean, is there a default when kind of the chaos of life around us settles down? Is my bride happy? Is she happy with me? Number two, does my bride expect sacrifice or selfishness? You get home from work, it's been a long day, you're kind of grumpy. Does she expect for you to come in and demand or does she have a default expectation that you're going to come in and serve her, engage the kids and encourage her because she's had a hard day? What does she expect? I'm not saying what do you do all the time, I'm saying what does she expect? Number three. Do my children respect the way I treat my bride? Some of of you have had children, your kids, confront you directly. Is my bride, number four, visibly nourished and cherished? We'll just give you a caveat relationally. Finally, number five Will I repent? Will I repent? Will I apologize? Will I eradicate any willful or things under my control that I can get out of my marriage that are sin? And will I change? Will I repent? So I want to go all the way back with you to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 because I want to create a vision. I want to create with you something uh, that is an ideal. I want to show you something beautiful the way that God intended it. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. It should be up on the board here. And uh, originally, the Garden of Eden, it's called technically the Garden of Delight. That's what Eden means. And the Garden of Delight was the place where everything was as it was supposed to be. This is before sin has entered into the world, before sin corrupted um, the marriage relationship or our relationship with God. And 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit For him. Now, the word man, I've told you, is one of my favorite Hebrew words. And it's the word ish. You can't say it like ish. you got to be manly and strong about it, because the word means strong. And I like to think of of this. Ish is like a big, hairy, strong man, right? With a slightly balding, like whatever. That's how I like to think about it, okay? (laughs) But ish means strong, which is a reflection that when God made man, he called him strong, because physically there's something unique about the guy um, that in distinction to the women, that is going to be strong. And, uh, and then it says, it is not good that he would be alone. I will make a helpful, h- helper fit for him. And so here's what's interesting is despite his outward strength, inwardly inside, what is he? He's super needy. Before the fall, dudes were needy. Ladies, let me just break down the secret. All the, the, all the bravado, all the muscles all the overcompensation, all the extra deep voices, all the ish, right? It's all a cover-up. I'm going to tell you what it's a cover-up for. Every man that I've ever met is broken, weak, insecure, and needy. All of them. Now, some of you men, you're a little bit farther along. Some of you, you are raw, and you don't have the ability to say it, you don't have the ability to admit it and you will say, that's not me, that's not me. But you know what? The woman who lives with you knows that words can break your soul. That unkind people, even when just groups leave you out, your feelings get hurt. You have emotional needs and you have, you have needs for, some of you are like physical touch people. You're like, you never, you never touch me. I just need a hug. And some of you are words of affirmation people. You don't say anything nice to me. Some of you are quality time people. You're like, we just need to spend some time. Why don't we spend enough time together, right? Deep down inside, Men are really needy. And, and so when, once you understand that about a dude, stuff will start to make sense. And this neediness precedes the fall. God has made men in such a way that when a woman comes into his life, she's able to help him and she's able to come alongside of him and meet some of those needs in a very powerful way. But then it goes on in verse 20. It says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Question number one, what did Adam need? A slave or a helper? A helper. He didn't need a slave. He didn't need somebody who could say, make me a sandwich. He needed somebody who could come alongside of him. And I want you to hear me. His job was to take the chaos of the world and bring order and dominion and rule to it. The man's job is to go in this chaotic world, whether it is a garden or whether it is work or whether it is metal, it's to take the chaos and disorder of the world and to bring order to it. And you know what he needs? He needs help. And so God has made woman to come alongside of him and co-labor with him in such a way that all of the chaos of the spheres of influence in our life that we together enter into these and we start to bring order out of the chaos in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. That's what we do. And a dude needs help and marriage is good and marriage is right and we need this and also we're just kind of, you know, insecure sometimes. Now, what did Adam need help with? And we need to catch this, ruling creation, not his wife. Having dominion over creation, he did not uh, need to dominate his wife. Verse twenty-two. It says, "This the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, He made into a woman and brought her to the man." Hebrew word for woman is, isha. Love it, isha, and it means soft. And so when the man Adam sees this woman, he is like, "You are so tender and beautiful and soft." And biologically, physically, there's just such distinct differences in them, and it's profound. And I love this because God is going to present to Adam this woman. He's never seen a woman before. He's looking at all creation. He sees this animal's got a partner and this animal's got a partner. And he's wondering, where's mine? And I love this. The Lord brings him a beautiful naked woman. And he looks at her and he just shouts in poetry. Listen to what he says. Adam says this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, it goes on and says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. This woman could look at him for all of his insecurity, all of his weaknesses. He could look at her and there was no shame. I mean, Many of you, you know, you're like, oh, my thighs are too big, my this is too that, or whatever. I and mean, you could fill, them, fill in the blank. And yet in the marriage context, this is a relationship where there is supposed to be no shame, and you are 100% fully known, junk and all, and you are not ashamed. I just want to talk to you men for a minute. I want to just make this so clear to you. As you look at the, at the pre-fall picture of Adam and Eve, I want you to get the picture of what you're created for. You were created to cherish and to savor your bride to be fully known, and to have zero shame. You were created to be a verbal poet. (laughs) You're created, and you have the capacity to open your mouth and have words of kindness and encouragement come out of your mouth to your bride. You were created to encourage her. I want you to catch this, and to rule over the chaos of life with her, not against her. Like that's the way it's supposed to be. You're created to lead spiritually, to be the leader, provider, and protector of your family because God has given you A a calling and B the physical strength to do it. You have an amazing, awesome privilege to lovingly love your wife as Christ loves the church. And we're gonna try to unpack this. But in the garden, the serpent shows up and he lies and he lies and he lies, and he lies. And if you're in this room, you've bought into the lie. You have believed the lie. I don't know which one, because there's about a million of them about what is a man, what is a woman, what is marriage, what should I do in this circumstance? What do I deserve? What do I do when I don't get what I want? There's a million plausible lies, but dudes, we have believed them hook, line, and sinker, which is why the majority of marriages, probably in the church, are struggling massively, especially outside of the church, because we just buy. Now let's read what happens in Genesis 3. The garden of delight becomes the garden of regret. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. And he said, where are you? Who did he call, by the way? The man. In Old Testament narrative, nothing is an accident. Nothing is arbitrary. It's communicating. And the New Testament picks this up and reclarifies this. Who sinned? it's hard to tell. I mean, yes, Adam did, but it seemed that Eve had the first like visible, known sin. But at the end of the day, here's what happens. Eve is going to be fully responsible. We see in the curse what happened, but God knocks on the door and says, Adam, I want to talk to you. Where's Adam? I want to speak to you. What has happened here? Because there's a primacy of responsibility. It does not mean that she is not responsible. There's a primacy of responsibility that one day on the day of judgment, every man will give an accounting for his leadership in his marriage and in the home. And here's what he says. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was... A, afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, um, the woman you gave to me with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Oh my gosh, blame, blame, blame. Genesis 3, the fall, shows us the three primary issues that men and marriage are going to have. Number one, passivity. Where was Adam when she sinned? Anybody? Like, I don't know, you know, I don't want to bother her. I mean, I mean, I could, no, I I don't care. Adam, you were given a direct command by God. God didn't even give that command to Eve. He gave it to Adam. Adam's job was to communicate it to Eve. And apparently Adam communicated enough to Eve, okay? But where was he? He knew the command of God. He sat back and he watched as his wife gave in to the serpent and in the end, sinned. Passivity. Number two, blame the woman. You're in a fight with your wife. And if you wouldn't have, I wouldn't have. If you would have done this, then I would have done this. Have we all said it? Of course, not you. I'm the only one. Liars. Okay, good. Right? Bling. She did. God, if you, if you had just given me a different woman, then I wouldn't have had to do this. It's pathetic. Number three, aggression. We see in Genesis 3 that part of the curse to the man is that he's going to rule over her. What was the intention? The intention is that he would rule with her not over her. And as a result of the curse, that man would now rule over her, would use his strength rather than to lead, provide, and protect physically and spiritually. Now what he's going to do is rule over her and use his physical strength to oppress and dominate her and to make her his functional slave. Hence what we've seen with women for the last thousands of years on earth. Let me just be clear. Passivity, blame, and aggression. Men, you have a curse on you that you're born with, and I want you to hear me, it makes you a big baby. What do babies do? They blame, they're passive. When they get hurt, they're like, I'm not gonna talk to you, I'm in a bad, you hurt my feelings, right? I'm gonna shun you, I'm gonna go into my room and shut the door. Oh, she made me do it yesterday. My kids come in, they disobeyed. The first thing my five-year-old says, well, she did it too. I'm like, I look at her and I said, who cares what she did, did you do it? And she, you know, I would blame. The woman, The sister you gave me, she's the one who made me do it, right? (laughs) Aggression, what does my three-year-old do? He doesn't like what you do? Bam, punches you in the face. That's what babies do. Functionally, right? And then my kid's like, no, I'm going to tell you how it is, right? Most men are big babies, and I want you to hear this. I'm going to be with you here right now. I'm going to tell you this right now. Um, I married my wife, and I was a big, big baby, just a big baby. Didn't get what I wanted, I pouted. I didn't like the way things were done, I pouted. I could go from yelling to passivity, from yelling to passivity, because I was a big baby. And every man that I know is a needy, insecure man. And well, now what has to happen in marriage, we gotta stop acting like babies and learn how to grow up into mature manhood. When you get in a fight with your wife, are you intentionally pursuing reconciliation or are you a big baby? Passivity, aggression, or blame. And here's, the, here's just the hard reality. Men, God has made you for so much more than acting like your children when it comes to your wife because no wife wants to be led by a big baby. And I want to tell you that I am repenting and will continually repent of being a big baby. So when I look at you and say it, I'm right here with you saying, um, I understand what it means to be insecure. I understand what it means to look at my wife and emotionally require her to meet my emotional or physical needs or whatever else when Jesus is the only one who can deeply satisfy me in the most personal level. And so we look to our wives, and we're like idolaters expecting our wives to be Jesus for us, and they'll never do it because they're fallen, and they can never meet all the deepest insecurities of our life. They were created to come alongside of us and help us, not make us whole. Jesus makes us whole. Wives come alongside, and we co-labor with them. Do you see the difference? And yet what do babies do? Babies say, if I don't get my way, you don't give it to me the way I want. I'm going to be passive. I'm going to blame you. I'm going to be aggressive. And I just, I just believe that the church can raise up a generation of husbands and dads who grow into mature manhood and get past some of these baby tendencies. Now, ladies, can I get an amen on that one, right? Weak, okay, all right. So, ladies, what I'm taking away is you want to be married to be big babies. Got it, all right, good. I'm on it with you. So now we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 5, and in the context, Paul is having to dismantle one of the most dysfunctional cultural Uh, notions of marriage from the Roman Empire, okay? Uh, And in the Roman Empire, um, women were basically subject. They were functional slaves. They did not have a huge voice. They were oppressed. They did not have incredible power. They didn't have even just the opportunities that you would have in 21st century America. And the women resented their husbands, were bitter to their husbands, were frustrated with their husbands. They were not seen as equals. And the husbands politically, culturally, relationally used their money and their power and the culture to keep women oppressed. They treated them often like slaves. To find a functional marriage in a Roman Empire was incredibly difficult. And so now Paul has to somehow build a church out of a bunch of crazy people, okay? And so he takes all of these broken people from a crazy culture, and now he has to somehow build healthy families. And healthy families start with healthy marriages, and if you're going to have a healthy church with crazy dysfunctional families, it doesn't work, right? And so Paul's smart. He's like, you're like, I've taught you all this theology in Ephesians chapter one through three. And I've been teaching you now in chapters four and five how to live. But I, want, I just want you, Village Church, to get this. There is no more difficult command in scripture than husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. Because wives and husbands, there is a curse on you. And every fabric of your bone and your being is infected with this curse. And wives, the curse on you is that you would devour your husbands, also called nagging or controlling or different things of the sorts, and that you would disrespect your husbands. There's a propensity in you because of a curse on you to do that. And husbands, the propensity in you is towards passivity on one side or aggression on the other and blame the whole way, okay? And so you waver back and forth from being a baby here to being a baby there. And this is why you need the power of Jesus Christ because this is fundamentally bigger than you and it requires supernatural power to grow up into spiritual mature adulthood. So point number one in your notes, you can find your notes also in your app if you want to download that there. Number one, what have I gotten myself into? The majority of men have no idea what we're doing. None. Ladies, I've never met a man who got married and was like, I'm pretty much the best husband ever. Like, my wife is so lucky. In fact, m- usually in the first year, um, not always, but most couples lie, oh, we're doing great. <laughs> and they're not. Some are, most aren't. Most men, it takes you 15, 30 years to figure out what you're doing, and in the process, you stumble over yourselves. Marriage is hard, it's really hard. It's really hard to do great. It's hard to have like, peace, let alone thriving joy. It's hard to just get along sometimes, let alone have a wife who's thriving spiritually and a husband who feels deeply respected and a wife who believes in the core of her being. She is nourished and cherished and loved. I mean, this is a hard thing. And so they have no idea what they're doing. And so in verse 31, Ephesians 5, it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, meaning um, this has never been told to the church in, in, in the history. They're finally realizing why God made marriage. God's giving them the secret. He's unfolding the mystery before them. The reason God made marriage is because he's trying to give the world a picture of Christ in the church. He says, the mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. So now, um, last week, ladies, I took a minute. I talked to the guys, gave them a little rebuke. Ladies, could I just give you a little kind rebuke? Uh, The two major pitfalls of a wife is that you will mother your husband or you will devour them. You will be their mother or you'll devour them. FYI, does your husband need another mother? Don't say yes. Don't say yes, ladies. If you treat him like a child, he'll let you mother him, almost always. If you treat him like a baby, he will act like a baby. But that is not who God has made him to be. The other pendulum swing for you is to devour him. When you don't get what you want, you coerce or you nag or you manipulate or use your emotions, whatever culturally acceptable ways we do that in America. These two pendulum swings are here for you, but for for the dudes, the two great challenges of husbands is ruling over your wives through passivity or through aggression. This is the issue. This is where everything is going to go awry in your life. You need to figure out how not to rule your wife, but to rule the chaos of your life with your wife you need to figure out how not to dominate your wife, but how to bring your wife alongside of you and bring order out of the chaos of your life, i.e. your children. (laughs) Anyone else? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the, what's the word? Head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So, there are a whole bunch of liberal theologians who sometimes they don't like what the Bible says because the Bible is not very kind if you're like a 21st century Western American and like you think your culture is the best culture on the planet, right? The Bible just has this way of offending you. And so what happens is sometimes um, liberal theologians will try to make words mean something they don't mean when in fact they just mean what they mean. And so um, some theologians have tried to make this out to mean source, which I don't even know totally what that means. I mean, I read it like The husband is the source of a woman. It's just, it's kind of chaotic and insane. You know what head means? Leader. It's basically what it means. Uh, Head is the one that controls maybe the rest of the body. Let me just give it to you practically. Um, To be the head means you have the responsibility to lead, provide, and protect. That is your God-ordained responsibility and mandate in your marriage. Now, dudes, do you get to be the head of someone else's wife? The answer is No, they said with conviction. (laughs) Paul Paul has an assumption here. And here's the assumption. Is that it's not easy to love the church. Was Jesus' job easy? You can say no on this one, right? No? Okay. Look at y'all. We're like a jacked up group of people. We're totally messed up in in every way. And somehow Jesus has to love us. And so when, when, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I'm sorry, ladies, but you're sinners who fall short of the glory of God and have tendencies towards devouring or mothering, which is really annoying if you're a dude. But guess what? That's not the only reason it's hard. The reason it's hard is because we're sinners too. So not only is the wife a sinner with a curse on her and certain propensities that make marriage incredibly difficult, but the dude is a sinner with equal propensities in different ways that make him equally difficult, uh, not a great leader. We want to rule or be passive. and and So the whole thing, it almost feels like it's set up to fail, which is why, hear me, you need Jesus to bring healing and redemption to the curse in your life. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to kill the curse and to be who God has made you to be. We learn here that leadership is hard. I have never, ever met a leader who said, leadership is easy. That's just grand fun. It's just so easy. People are like so much fun. I've never met a pastor, ever, who's like, oh, pastoral ministry, everybody just complies. (laughs) (laughs) They all love the music. And whenever there's another preacher in the pulpit, they're like, oh, darn it, we want him back, right? Like, I've never, ever, ever met a leader who says leadership is easy. Because it's not. And the reason it's not is, yes, partly because you're married to a sinner. But even more importantly, leadership is hard because of you and the curse that is on you. And you need to recognize that when you default towards passivity or aggression, that is the curse. That's not the Holy Spirit or your personality, which we use to justify. We'll go to point number two in the notes. What if my agape love isn't working. You may not know what agape love is. So when he says, husbands, love your wives, this is the word agape, which is not an emotional kind of love. It is a decision to sacrifice, probably despite the difficulty in front of you. Every time agape love happens, it is a a love of the will. It is a decision that you are making. So he's not saying, husbands, have this affection for your wife as Christ has this affection for the church. When Jesus was in the garden, What did he say to God the Father? Please take this from me. Please take this from me. Not my will, yours, I'll do it. And there was a sense in the humanity of Jesus that he asked God to make this thing not happen. It's not easy. And so I'm not going to look at you for one second and say, agape, love your wife, and it's going to be easy. What I'm here to say to you is even when you don't feel it, agape still dies. It still loves. But here's the reality. Most men give up. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to get home today, and you're going to be like, yeah, long message, but um, pretty good. I think I'm going to try this whole thing, okay? And you're going to go, um, like, you're get home, and your wife's going to be tired. The kids will be doing stuff, or maybe the grandkids, or maybe something needs to be done. Expectations won't be met, and you're going to exercise an incredible amount of self-will today. And she's going to be grumpy, and you're going to be like, oh, that's okay, honey. You may go up to her, and, you know, you may uh, put your hand on her and say a kind word to her, and you're all like, I got this thing down. This is easy, Right? and then you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's all going to be gone, right? Because you're going to muster up this incredible will for about 24 to 48 hours, and then she's not going to change. You told me, Pastor Mike, if I love my wife as Christ loves the church, this woman's going to submit to me, and she's still belligerent. She still isn't nice to me. Like, what am I going to do about this, right? I'm done, I'm done. It's what babies do, by the way. I can't walk. I'm going to give up, right? So many of you, you're like, loving my wife is like a microwave. 45 seconds later, I put it in, I press the button, and bam, she's a better human, okay? Not how it works. I initially thought, no, it's sort of like an oven. And your wife, her heart is hard and frozen, and so that's because you stink at being a husband. And so what happens is she's got to thaw out. So you maybe put it in the, in the oven for a little bit. It's got to thaw out. And then you're ready for the right kind of heat, okay? And then it takes some time. You got to bake this thing. It's got, it doesn't just happen. You don't know, just throw it in, and you're like, oh. And then you try to put a fork in it, eat, and it's the hardest rock. That's because you don't get the principle, okay? When you've been a jerk for a long time, it takes a long time to make it better. Can I get an amen, ladies? Yeah, yeah just about the other people's marriage. I get it, totally, yeah. Then I was sitting here, and I was preaching that service. I'm like, no, better than an oven, it's like a crock pot, okay? Because it's even slower, <laughs> and it takes forever. <laughs> so you got this cold-hearted wife, and she's not cold-hearted because she's just a big jerk. She's cold-hearted because she's unloved, okay? And you got this unloved wife, and you want to eat lasagna. Well, somehow you got to figure out over the course of a, of a period of time, how to de this, which is its own little magic, right? And then you got to figure out how to cook it just right and then give it enough time, and then you got to figure out how to savor and enjoy it, okay? Um, and so there's this process, and most of us, we're going to go home and like, it's too hard, it's too hard, it's too long, I'm just going to continue being a jerk. Well, you can be a jerk, and in 10 years, you can have an even worse marriage or be divorced. Or you can do something different and use this incredible thing called a will and change the way you act and play the long game. Maybe handle your wife like many of you handle your investments. You put a little bit in a time and you hope over time it's going to pay back. That's probably a better way to think about loving a woman is if you want her heart to be soft and tender and her to be loved, it takes years to invest into that account. If you want it to care for you later, you have to care for it now. Now, the sooner or the younger you are, the easier this is because some of you, when you get married, you're not frozen at all. You come to this thing ready to cook. And it can go fast, which is why if you're newly married, incredible opportunity to avoid what so many adults and so many marriages have had to go through. You can start off right if you can just learn this basic principle, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I would also be remiss to tell you, uh, like, if you just do this, it's all gonna be fine. Uh, I can't control, nor can you control your wife. Here's what you are responsible to God for, self-control, controlling yourself, doing your part controlling your words, controlling your emotions. And some of you are going to go home, and again, you're going to have an incredible amount of self-will today. You're going to give up tomorrow. And rather than give up, can I just give you an alternate strategy? Try this. I'm sorry. And then when you mess up again, what comes out of your mouth? I'm sorry. And then when you mess up again, because it's going to happen, by the way, right? Ladies, if you think you're married to a man who's going to master loving you like Christ loved the church in anything less than 40 years, you're ridiculous. So you need to be really, really patient with the process. Oh, by the way, um, he also has to put up with you because if you think you're going to overcome the curse of mothering and devouring just like that, he also has to put up with you. So this is a mutual agreeing to dealing with the curse that is on each of us. Just, I think a better idea is why not apologize and apologize and apologize? and apologize, and apologize, and apologize, and apologize till death do you part. Because you can try to prove her right by being the man you want to be, but you'll never be the man you want to be. Or you can maybe soften her heart with a genuine apology that has no blame connected to it in any way, shape, or form. You know what the blame word is, right? But, I'm really sorry, but most give up. Babies give up. Weak men with weak character give up. You gave your word. Now it's time to keep it, dudes. You told her you were going to love her. And I doubt any of you got up on your wedding day and said, I will love you if you're nice. We'll love you if you do this for me. Love you if you do that for me. But if you don't do that for me, we're done. That's not what any of you said. You promised to love her. Mature men love unconditionally. Not perfectly, but we are moving towards loving unconditionally. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives, agape your wives, as Christ agaped the church and gave himself up for her. This means two things, husbands pursue and husbands die. Husbands pursue, by the way, who pursued who? Jesus or the church? No, Jesus pursued the church. Did the church die for Jesus? No, the church is like lost. We need to be saved. That's why he died for the church. Husbands, take take a cue from Jesus. Pursue and die. That is leadership. The Gentiles, they lord it over them. You pursue and die. I love this in verse 26. It tells us what agape love does. Over the long haul, over the long haul, agape love transforms. Agape love is so powerful that when repeatedly done, transforms the recipient. Here's what it says in verse 26. That he might sanctify her or make her pure or holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Let me just get real practical. What Paul wants the Ephesian men to understand is you need to love and sacrifice. And if you're going to love her and you want to see her transformed and you're going to leave the word of God, the Bible out of your marriage, it will not happen. You need the word of God to be central in your home. Has to be which means how you posture your relationship with the church, with sermons, how you interact, what you talk about, what you discuss, whether you do home Bible studies or not, I don't care, whether you listen to podcasts together or not and talk about them, the word of God has a singular power to transform a soul and a home in such a way that nothing else can. And so if you're gonna lead your wife, you will ensure that the word of God takes center stage in your home. It looks different for everybody. Some of you, you're going to open up the Bible at dinner and you're going to read and you're going to pray. Some of you, you're going to give your whole family podcast to listen to and you're all going to come back and say, let's listen to him." okay? I don't care how you do it, but the husband who leads brings the word of God into the home centrally. And then here's what happens. Verse 27, so that he, Jesus, may present the church to himself in splendor. Dudes, do you want a splendorous wife? Please say Yes, yes. And it doesn't happen without sacrificial love and the word of God. These two things go hand in hand. He says this, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless. This tells me two things. Loved wives live differently. Loved wives live differently. Also tells me a second thing. One day you're gonna present your bride to Jesus. And here's my question. What are you going to present? You can't control her, but you can control the environment you create around her. You can control the atmosphere of your life and you can control that. And when you present your wife to Jesus Christ, will she be more holy and pure and righteous and in love with Jesus because of your relationship with her? Or will she be bitter and cynical and angry and frustrated, will she go to Jesus and say, why did you give me that man? Or will she go to Jesus and say, he's a broken, insecure dude, but doggone it, that guy loves me. He said he was sorry a whole lot. And which one is she going to get? I can guarantee you she's not going to be like, my husband was the perfect husband, because only Jesus is. So guys, you can rest assured. One of the most interesting verses is in Proverbs 30. and talks about the unloved woman. And uh, 3021 says this: under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. These are like the worst things you can imagine happening in the world, okay? A slave when he becomes a king, a fool when he's filled with food. And I'm going to listen to this: an unloved woman when she gets a husband. My desire is to present to some imbecile on my daughter's wedding day <laughs> a loved, young, woman. And my desire is to threaten him with all of the power that I have somehow to come alongside of this guy and help him. And if he's got a dad who's already done for him, praise God even more. I just don't expect it anymore. But what I want is for my little girls one day to grow up knowing they are securely loved and that my love and Brianne's love for them is just an image of Jesus's love. And then they're going to get married to this guy who has no clue what he's doing. And they're going to be equipped to love and respect and to honor that man despite his insecurities and frailties and weaknesses. My desire is that this guy, that we could have enough influence in his life that we could help him learn how to love a woman young so he doesn't have to figure it out when he's in his 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. How do I do this? Verse 28 says this, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is, this is what I like to say. Okay, let's say you don't like Jesus and you don't like any of this. Paul just gets really practical. He's like, let's get rid of all the theology for a moment. Let's just talk like man to man for a moment. <laughs> Do you want to be happy? Answer is yes. Then love your wife. <laughs> Do you want to be miserable? No. Then keep doing what you're doing. So rhetorical question, which means you don't answer. Okay, here's the first question. When you woke up today, before you came to church, did you brush your teeth? I would hope the answer is yes. Somebody over here is saying no, but I'll go with a yes, okay? When you woke up this morning, did you eat food sometime before you came here? I think the answer is yes. A little grumble in your tummy, and you're like, I'm going to get some food. You're going to satisfy that itch. Fine, good. Did you encourage your bride today? Did you nourish her? And apparently, the urges of a body are as important as encouraging, nourishing, and cherishing your bride. And that if you want to be not grumpy and hangry, right, you have to feed yourself. And yet if you want to, at the end of every day, have a remotely happy wife, you want to feed that and encourage her. And apparently for Paul, the level to which you take care of your body, your physical body, is the same level to which you take care of her. And if you've got some weird work growing, you address it in theory. You're supposed to. And if you have some sickness and disease, you address it real time because you know it's going to make your life uncomfortable. He's like, let's just get practical. Happy wife, happy life. You want to be happy? Take care of her. Love her. Die for her. Pursue her. Um, Jesus is an image. But you don't like Jesus? Fine. It's on you. You want to be miserable? Treat her like you're treating her. And you will have, in a number of years, a very, very sad, sad marriage. He says this, he who loves his wife loves himself. It's almost selfish, right? So if I want to be happy, then I can love her. Yeah. As weird as that sounds. I love how the commands of scripture are not, they're not only genius, they're also practical, right? They actually don't make us more miserable, they increase happiness. And then he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh. What does he do? Nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. To nourish means to give sustenance so that it might thrive, to give it the Required nutrients that it might live. What does a woman's soul need? Love, nourishing, and cherishing. To cherish, what does this mean? To savor and to enjoy. I don't care how liberal and progressive you ladies are. Every woman I've ever known wants to be loved, nourished, and cherished by a humble, servant-hearted man. And there's something inside of you, ladies, that is made to come alive and to soften under that kind of love. It's a good thing. I want to close and answer a few questions here. What if I have failed miserably for a long, long time? I would say this. Agape love works almost always eventually. But in in the meantime... You need to find help. A third party professional counselor, a or pastor, or something who can come alongside of you and help you navigate if you have done a really, really poor job. But here's the first place where I want you to start I am sorry. I have treated you out of the curse. I have not treated you and lived by the Holy Spirit. And be specific. I think apologies and ownership goes so much farther than anything else. Why is it so hard to say I'm sorry? Ladies, if you can catch this, I think it actually might help you quite a bit understand, dudes. For a guy, the first big I'm sorry, it's the hardest one. By by and large, it is so hard. And we need to catch this. Because to say I'm sorry now is to admit failure for everything in the past. Let's say a guy has been married for 40 years. And he looks at you and says, I have not treated you well. I'm sorry. He is admitting failure for 40 years. And failure is what we fear so badly. We want to be respected, successful, significant. And to look at my bride and say, you know, not just for a couple months, for years, I have failed to be a godly man to you. It is one of the most difficult things. And some of you ladies, you're going to get this apology at some time in your life and you're going to be, for real? It took you this long? Come on. Like, kill that instinct. Kill the mothering in you. And that moment, because it's a sacred moment that requires the Holy Spirit for a man to get to that place to take that first big apology to change direction in the marriage. What if my wife is a jerk? (laughs) Let me me just, she's probably a jerk because you're a jerk, first. Um, Second, your love for her is not contingent on her behavior. The answer is the same. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, whether she's nice or whether she's not. What if I've abused my bride physically or sexually? I will not even give a detailed answer to this. I would just say, you need immediate intervention. You need to go get help, and you need a third party to enter into this context and help bring massive healing and redemption. Am I doomed if my husband is a fool? Huh. So in the, in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Nabal. His name means fool. And he was married to, who knows? Abigail. You guys are so smart. I love it. Here's what 1 Samuel 25.3 says. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Okay, so women, are you doomed to be a terrible, unloved, ugly-on-the-inside woman if your husband is a big, fat idiot? The answer is no. If you become ugly on the inside, he may have created an atmosphere that fostered that, but you will stand personally accountable for God, uh, to God for your character and for your integrity. And she is a living example that just because I'm married to a fool does not mean I need to respond in kind and be a fool. How do I love my wife when I am publicly disrespected? If I respond, disrespect is heaped upon me. So Jesus, I think, would say it this way. If somebody hits you on the left cheek, what do you do? You let them hit you right. Unfortunately, the, I mean, fortunately, I guess, the message of Jesus is not about retaliation, but the Christian is actually the one who is most willing to be abused. Now, I don't mean be abused, be abused physically by your husband. That is not what I mean. So do not read into that. I'm just saying we're the ones who are the most willing to be taken advantage of because love believes all things and hopes all things and gives second chances and third chances. Even when people fail and fail and fail. What if I have, a, what if I have the Proverbs quarrelsome wife? Some of you are like, I am not quarrelsome. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I just want to remind you of these verses because they're really funny, but it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome woman. <laughs> it's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife, they're alike. It's like we use dripping for torture. It's like, it's like living with you is like living in a camp where I'm tortured, right? <laughs> What if I had the Proverbs quarrelsome wife? Again, your love for her is not contingent on her behavior or performance, number one, Number two, recognize that you will like to go to the desert with your hobbies, in the corner of your roof with your hobbies to avoid it, but that is not where the man needs to be. What if my boyfriend or fiance struggles with self-control? Just say it like this, ladies, if he cannot lead himself, he cannot lead you. Everybody, Christian or non-Christian, is given an incredible measure of self-control. Christians have it uniquely and distinctly, but everybody has the capacity to control themselves. And if he does not have the ability to control his life and to lead himself spiritually, then he has no capacity to lead you spiritually. You're setting yourself up for failure. I'm getting married. What are the most common threats to loving my wife like Christ loves the church? Neglecting your personal relationship with Jesus, porn, hobbies, and forgetting the purpose of marriage. You want to kill your marriage right off the, right off the top here? Neglect Jesus. Look at porn. Fill your life with stupid hobbies that have no eternal redemption and then never understand when you stand on that wedding altar, why this thing exists. If you think marriage exists for sex and to make you happy, you have utterly missed the point of marriage. You will be a miserable human being and your wife will hate you. Marriage is about Christ and the church first and foremost. And it is about you being formed in the image of Jesus and loving her, the bride, as Christ loved the church. That's what it's about. You are literally walking into an institution that was designed and created by God to kill sin in you and to magnify Jesus Christ before it does anything else. So like if you miss that, then you're like, she didn't perform for me, she didn't give me this, she didn't do that. You're going to be a trite baby, your whole marriage and God has made you to be a mature man who loves like Christ loved the church. We'll close with this passage, 1 Peter 3:7, "Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way." Ladies, do you want to be understood? Yes. Showing honor to the women, ladies, do you want to be honored? Yes. It says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Women, by and large, are most of your husbands larger and stronger than you? The answer is yes. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You want a terrible life? Don't love your wife. You want a terrible relationship with God? Don't love your wife. You want to ruin your legacy for generations and generations? Don't love your wife. If you want to do something different, if you want to change the world, if you want to change the heart of your wife and the heart of your children and generations to come, love your wife like Christ loved the church and you will never regret it as hard as it would be. And when you want to give up, you get on your knees and you say, strengthen me. And when you screw up, you get on your knees before her and you say, I'm sorry. And I want you to watch over the next five years of your life, the next year of your life, the next month of your life, as the hard heart that some of you have been married to melts underneath the weight of your sacrificial love. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Father, just very well aware right now of so many marriages in this room that are in so many different places and your word has something to say for every circumstance in this room. That your Holy Spirit has a next step for everyone. So God, I know that we've talked touched on a ton of issues here, but Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, move individually in each man and each woman in this room? Would you do what only you can do? Would you convict? Would you encourage? Would you heal? Would you redeem? Would you energize? God, I pray that you give husbands and wives in this room supernatural, enduring energy to love and to respect. But Father, thank you for Jesus, because without him, this would not be possible. And Lord, I pray you would just even remind us that every time we love our wives, Jesus gets glory. God, I pray you would give us such a deep vision for bringing glory and honor to Jesus that that would translate into wanting to love our wives, even just to a better degree of how you love the church. Jesus, thank you for being faithful for never giving up, for encouraging, for growing us, for forming character in us, transforming us. Now, Lord, may our families, may our spouses and our children experience the same thing when we obey you. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.